And would you pray with me? Now, God, as we turn our attention to your word, it is living, it is active. We ask that you would use it in our lives. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 3. We're going to the book of Acts between now and the end of June. Acts chapter 3 could be on your tablet, on your phone, or in your Bibles if you have a hard copy with you. Beginning at verse 1, the Word of God says this. One day, Peter and John were going to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going to the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet, he began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. This is the first miracle in the book of Acts. We have the Spirit falling on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people being saved. But this is the first miracle that we see in Acts. And sometimes we find miracles challenging. We come to a portion of Scripture like this and we think, if I was to engage with the average Hamiltonian about what this passage was about, what would I say? What would I do when they asked me about the miraculous? How would I respond to God doing this through a man named Peter? And yet, this is one of the ways that God chose to accredit it or proof that this was his son and now the work through his son. When God the Son came, God the Father worked through him, empowering him by the Spirit to accredit it who he was, to be able to declare this is my son through many miracles that Jesus performed. And then... Now the apostles able to do the same thing, being able to declare and point people to Christ. Now it's interesting when you take a look at many of the miracles in Scripture, what they are and what they aren't. I mean, when you start to examine the miracles of Scripture, almost all of them, if not in their entirety, are around the alleviation of suffering or trouble. Something like the Red Sea is trouble. Many around suffering. I mean, God could have chosen to do other things. What if one of the disciples had just gotten up and flown? What if they had some type of heat vision? What if they had some type of, 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 of super-empowered strength that could kind of blow through walls? But that's not what God does. God chooses to use his miraculous healing through either his son Jesus or then the apostles by his spirit to often alleviate suffering or to help in times of trouble. And in those moments of doing so, there are a signpost. A signpost saying and indicating that Jesus is here. But there's something else. They also indicate what God is doing. They also indicate the restorative order of God and his purposes for the created order at one time. Because God hates sickness as much as we do. In fact, I'd like to say more. 
God hates death as much as we do. In fact, I'd say more. God hates the enemy's work as much as we do. In fact, I'd say more. And so as God in his restorative genius is taking things and recreating them, is allowing a man who was lame to walk, other examples of this, he's letting everyone know and see that he's going to restore his created order to the way he intended and purposed it. Does that make sense? He's showing everybody what's going to happen, what's going to occur as who he is is declared to people around him. So just quickly through this, for these first 10 verses, right? Peter and John are going to the temple about three. That's the evening sacrifice at three in the afternoon as they're going at time of prayer. So the last sacrifice of the day would be being offered. Remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago and last week. They're gathering at the temple courts as that is where the Jewish people are gathering. And as the Jewish people are gathering there, Peter and John and the other apostles are going to be able to declare to the Jewish people that the Messiah, the promised one, in whom they've been waiting for, in whom they put their hope in, he's come in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one to trust. He is the one to believe in. So they're there at the temple. As they get there, there's a man who's lame. He's carried there by his friends because he can't get there on his own. That means he's carried home by his friends because he has no other way. And as this man is there and he's at the temple, he's begging. I've said this before on a number of occasions, but most of us realize that if we live anywhere in the world except for the Western world, with a few exceptions, that you have three choices in life. You work, you beg, or you starve. There's no ODSP, there's no OW, there's no social security network in most of the world. You either work, you beg, or you starve to death. That's all you got. So this man is here, and he's begging. He's begging so that he can live. As Peter and John are entering, he asks them for money. He's like, could you help me with some finances? And they look straight at him. And Peter says, look at us, give us your attention. He does. He's expecting something from them, verse 5 says. And Peter says, silver or gold have I none. That's King James Version, but I love how it says it. What I do have I give you in the name of Jesus, walk. And then maybe because this is what Jesus saw with Jairus' daughter, but Jesus takes him gently by the right hand and, or by, yeah, by the right hand, it actually says that, and helps him up. And instantly the man begins to walk. And then he goes into the temple courts and he begins to jump and praise God. Twice it said. The people see him, he's walking, he's praising God. And everyone is amazed because God is undoing the curse. That's what he's doing. It's maybe why Isaiah 35, that often is thought of in terms of, of, of end times, which it is. Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then, you will, uh, then sorry, will the lame leap like the deer, and the mute will shout for joy. But these signposts aren't about us or about the miraculous. These signposts are about Jesus Christ. You see, people will get hung up on the miraculous. They'll get hung up on why God would do this healing and not that healing, or why he would heal in this way and not that way. And Peter and John are about to experience this moment where the people, the crowd, is going to come around them because of their amazement and be like, okay, so what was this about? And Peter and John are going to explain what it was about. It was about Jesus 
Because when someone is struggling or trying to figure out faith, my thing is, don't get hung up on the miraculous. Get hung up on Jesus. Begin to read the Gospels about his life. Begin to read what they say about him. Begin to read about who he is. I mean, one of the people I've loved with this testimony is Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny Erickson Tata, who was uh, left paralyzed by a diving accident in the 60s. I've heard her speak on a number of occasions. I so appreciate her writings. And being left paralyzed most of her life and being in immense amounts of pains, at one time praying for healing that God chose not to give her, at other times praying for the alleviation of pain, and she's in immense pain. She writes prolifically about hope, about the gospel of Jesus, about what it means to follow him. In fact, through the pandemic, she was interviewed on a couple of occasions about the pain that she's in, about suffering that people go through. And on one, one occasion, I found this. She, she replied, God shares his joy on his terms, and those terms call us to, in some measure, suffer as our own precious as his own precious son, Jesus, suffered. It's hard to believe in graft that once you dive in and believe God's word, you experience a joy that is hands down, off the charts, over the top, profound, so profound and awesome and all-consuming, it just springs back up to God in a fountain of joy and then flows back to others in streams of encouragement. You can lie in bed in the middle of the night completely paralyzed and think, man, I'm the happiest person in the world, and how can that be? It must be Jesus. It must be him. The more you could say that, acknowledge it, the more joy will flood your heart because you're sharing in Christ's afflictions, and you're going to him for the help and hope you need. That's why I would say your days may be dark if you're suffering from disappointment through this pandemic, but they may also be brilliant, wonderful, glorious, and great because they can push you to Christ. That's what God does. He wants us to look to Jesus. Verse 11. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. So some, at some point, the man's come back to Peter and John. He's kind of holding on to them, and the crowd has gathered. And Peter says, fellow Israelites, why are you surprised? Why do you stare as if we did this? And then he explains to them what happened. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, he's glorified his servant Jesus. Just pause there for a minute. Peter makes the continuity between the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the New Testament real here. You see, what often happens is people think, well, there's this big break with Jesus. And he's saying, no, this is what God had promised. This is what God had said. This is what our forefathers believed was coming. And as we've just walked through the whole book of Genesis, I hope you realized in Genesis that Genesis is predominantly about three figures, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So often we think it's about Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph. But all through the Psalms, all through the prophetic word, you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even through Genesis, Pastor Paul and I specifically on a couple of occasions just really mentioned strongly what it meant that even in the life of Joseph, they were continually talking about Joseph's father, Jacob. Because Jacob was the one 
in whom God had offered the promise and covenanted with him to call him Israel. And so Peter says, why are you surprised? This is the work of the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's glorified his servant Jesus. Now you may know that in Isaiah there are four servant songs. Four servant songs, known as the, 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 the kind of the suffering servant. And these four songs are talking about someone who will suffer that we know are messianic in nature. In fact, if you read literature written by Jewish people, specifically in the intertestamental period, the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, whether you're reading the Mishnah or the Pseudepigrapha, there are writings at the time, the Apocrypha. I mean, in our, in our uh, Protestant Bibles, we don't have the Apocrypha like the Catholics do. The Apocrypha is not scriptural, but it is good Jewish literature. Does that make sense? And as you read this good Jewish literature that is not scriptural, you can see them talking in their Jewish tradition that these songs, these servant songs, are messianic in nature. And so the Jewish people hear Peter talk about this, and they they hear him claim that this servant of God is Jesus. Isaiah 52 says this, verse 13 and 14. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond any human likeness. And then note they begin these accusations. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, even though he decided to let you go. And so they're clear. We've only done this not by our power, not by our strength, but by the power and strength of Jesus. Is that your testimony? When people thank you for a job well done and it's in an area of your skill set or expertise, do you acknowledge that that skill set or expertise you have is God's? I mean, maybe you're quite skilled with your hands. That's my dad and my brother. That's my son, Ethan. And they're quite skilled with their hands. They're good at what they do with their hands, with machines, with tools. I'm not good with that. And do they give God the glory for having that skill set. Maybe it's with your mind. And maybe you're an academic. God's granted you the abilities you have with your mind. Maybe it's with music. Maybe, maybe it's with a hobby that you have or a sport. Maybe you're an incredible athlete. You're an amazing hockey player. When people are stunned at your abilities, you give God the glory because God's the one who's granted them to you. When we think about our own church, do we do that? I mean, I'm thankful that we work with refugees. I'm thankful that on Fridays, we have 40 to 50 people that come on to get assistance through Coffees On, and we help the marginalized. I'm thankful that our youth ministry is a youth ministry that not only cares for the kids a part of our congregation, but the kids outside in the community who come in as well. I'm thankful we put in housing, and that we've housed 49 people, some of whom were, were in encampments and precariously living in the building that's neighbor to us that we own here. And as people will talk about our ministry, it's not our ministry. It's the work that God is choosing to do through us. To him be the glory. To him be the credit. It's God who's provided. It's God who's allowed. It's God who's directed. It's God who's given. It's God. And do we give him that kind of credit in our lives and through our ministry? Because we've got nothing. Like, we've got nothing without Jesus, right? We need to point people to him, continually to him. 
And so Peter continues in the uniqueness of Jesus. Note again the use, verse 14. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. So back to verse 13. You handed him over. You disowned him. Again, you disowned the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life. Peter just goes for the juggler. He doesn't mince his words. He's looking at the crowd who would have been there not long ago chanting crucify him. And he says, you did this. You did this. You're the ones who had him executed. He was the servant of which Isaiah speaks. He was innocent. And you condemn the innocent person even though the Gentile, Pilate, was going to let him go. And you allowed the guilty to be acquitted. You killed the holy and righteous one. Terms only used of God the Father previously. Holy. Set apart. That's God the Father. And Peter says it's also true of Jesus. Righteous one. Blameless. Pure. Without sin, spot, or blame. And again, true of Jesus. You killed the author of life. I mean, when they hear this back in, 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 on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, that's when they cry out, what do we do? I mean, what do we do? We've, we've killed the author of life. We've killed the Messiah. How do we ever come clean with God when that's what we've done? And Peter goes on and tells them. Verse 16, so it's by faith in the name of Jesus that this man whom you see and know was made strong. It's in Jesus' name and faith that comes through him that he has completely healed him as you can all see. And so he's clear. This is because of Jesus. This is because of faith in Jesus. Only Jesus could do this. Jesus has made this man strong. It's in his name, in his name, that he is completely healed. This is reminiscent of John 15, 5 for me, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me and I in you and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can't do a thing. Apart from me, you can't do a thing. And notice that God didn't just heal him physically. In chapter 4 that Pastor Derek will get to in a couple of weeks, because next week Rick Reed, one of Canada's best communicators, will be with us here. I'm so excited Rick's coming. He's a good friend. I love him. And I'm so glad he's here for our two services and for the Karen service in the afternoon. I'll, I'm preaching it today, and he's preaching there next week. He's a good friend of Close Aids now as well. And, um, and in two weeks, Derek will get to this. But the man is there standing with the disciples because he's been converted. Because it's not just about his legs. You see, had, had this man simply had his legs healed, then in a month or six weeks or two months, he'd realize, man, my legs weren't my only problem. In fact, my legs weren't my biggest problem. My biggest problem is what? Is sin. My biggest problem is my guilt. My biggest problem is my sin. I mean, had his legs been healed because lots of people have legs at work. And yet, that's true of most of us in this room. And yet we know that that's, that's not our biggest solution to our biggest problem in life, right? Having working legs. I mean, with my sciatica, sometimes I am just in utter pain. And last night we were putting stuff away in a crawl space that no one in my family will go into because it's above our addition and it may contain spiders. No one will go into it. So I said to Amy, she's like, there's no way. I know I can't send Ethan in. He's not afraid of much, but if a spider shows up, I don't know what he would do in that crawl space if he was up there, but I think the crawl space would come down. He would be so upset. 
And so I, I go in, but I just felt it going in and coming out. And Amy said, oh, you're in pain. I said, I'm in pain. And the healing of my sciatica isn't my big problem. It's my heart. It's my soul. And if this man only had his legs healed, a few months later he'd be like, yeah, that was a problem, but not my biggest problem. My biggest problem is my heart. My biggest problem is my sin. My biggest problem is my soul. And so he's been completely healed, body and soul, because it's by faith in the name of Jesus and only him. Verse 17. So now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then. Turn to God, so your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you. So what does he say? Peter says, you know what? You were acting in ignorance. That doesn't excuse them. He still calls them to repentance. You didn't even exactly know what you were doing. That's true of us sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes as you walk longer with the Lord, you realize that God convicts you of a sin that you've been a part of for years in your life that you didn't even realize was sinful. And God shows you, actually, that's actually out of your bitterness that you didn't even know you had. That's out of your pride that you thought you dealt with. That's out of whatever it would be that you thought was long gone. And I'm still working in you because you're not quite like my son yet. I'm still perfecting you to be like Jesus. You're not there. And so they were acting out of ignorance. But that doesn't excuse them. It was still sin. And Peter says, the Messiah would have to suffer. See, they were expecting a Messiah that would reign, a Messiah that would rule. In fact, if you remember, back just in Acts 1 a few weeks ago, the disciples say what to Jesus? Is this the time when you're going to restore Israel? Jesus is like, oh boy. That's not in the text, his oh boy, by the way. That was just me. Right? But that's the idea. And when the Spirit falls, that's when I believe the disciples got it. The Spirit falls on them like, oh, this is what this is about. We get it now. Their eyes were open to who Jesus is and what he's done and his work. So he says, repent. Repentance is turning from whatever you believed in and turning to what? And turn to God. Here's how you know if you believe in something more, more uh, importantly than you believe in God. What if you lost today would incapacitate you? I don't mean it wouldn't be hard. Like if Amy passed away today, it would be hard. But it wouldn't incapacitate me. Amy isn't my life. Jesus is my life. But if you were unable to finish your schooling, if Friday was your last day of school and you now had to figure out a different career path, would you be okay? Because your schooling isn't your life. Jesus is your life. If your RSPs, your TFSAs were wiped out tomorrow, and you had no savings for retirement, would you be okay? Because Jesus is your life. If you are unable to ever play sports again or unable to ever participate in your favorite hobby, whatever that would be, if you never ever were able to go online again, ever, ever go online again, would you be okay? Because Jesus is your life. You see, if any of those things or things I didn't name would make you not okay, that's a big problem. Because it means you're believing in them, you're hoping in them, you're trusting in them instead of in Jesus. And these people were trusting in their own accord. And Jesus says, repent. Repent from whatever it is you're hoping in. Repent from whatever it is you're trusting in. Repent from whatever it is you're believing in. And turn to God because he's your only hope. 
And what will he do? The text says it. He will, it's right there. Is it still there? He will wipe away your sins. That your sins can be wiped out. Is that not good news? The one thing I can't deal with in my life is my own sin. It just accumulates this massive debt to God. And he says, the work of Christ can wipe away your debt. It's gone. That's what he's done for Ash, who was baptized for this morning. That's what he's done for Butu. That's what he's done for Nate and others. They've repented. They've trusted in God. And he's wiped away their sin. For what? For times of refreshing. Did you see that in the text? That you can be refreshed. That God can nourish you. That he can be the one you turn to and you find nourishment. I mean, maybe that's why he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you, I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. Listen to these words, Ezekiel 18. Therefore, you Israelites, I, I will not judge you. Uh, I, will, I will, sorry, judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O people of Israel? I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Mark 1. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent, believe the good news. Second Peter 3. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Repent, repent, and turn to God. You see, you're not just turning from this junk in our lives that we trust in, we're turning from it to Christ, to God. He's the one we trust in. It's what we heard this morning in Nate and Butu's testimony. The repentance of their sin, the repentance of it because it only led to emptiness. It only led to a void. It only led to mess and realizing they need God. And then you heard it in both of their testimonies. The joy, the hope, that they've experienced after. Why? Because God himself gives refreshing. Is that not great news? I mean, you can go to church in and out all you want, as much as you want. That's not repentance. You heard that in the testimony this morning. They had godly parents who loved them deeply, who encouraged them to go to church. We're not the only church to be involved in their lives. Several other churches in the city, Philpott, Streetlight, others, have walked alongside of the Quran. I don't know why God chose in this moment and this time to save as many of them as he has. But I say this, it's not about James North. It's about the sovereign hand of our God choosing to save when he declares it so. It's simply his work. In his timing. And it's his. You see, so often we think of, of this work as, as if it's our work and it's God's. And we just need to trust in him. That's why... Peter says so many times, it's in Jesus' name. I can't save anyone. I remember John Newfeld, back to the Bible. I just, I so appreciate John saying one time at a conference that I was at, he said, you know, he said, we think what we do is we go into an election booth and we see all these choices. We see Buddhism, Hinduism. We see, we see atheism. You know, we see Jesus and we checked off Jesus. 
He said, the truth is God looked over all of humanity and all he saw was a graveyard because we were dead in our sins and transgressions and God chooses to raise the dead. Is that not good news? That's what he does. He chooses to bring life. He chooses to grant hope. John um, Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace that we'll sing at the end of the service, he also wrote this when he was reflecting on the death of Christ in his own life. Alas, I I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou mightst live. Thus, Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace. It seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit is not filled that I should such a life destroy, yet live through him I killed. That's just beautiful. Verse 21 of Acts 3. Peter now is going to explain how Jesus is the Messiah once again to the Jews. Heaven must receive him, he's ascended, until the time when God is going to restore everything. Just like he's restored this lame man, Peter's saying. Jesus has gone to heaven until everything is restored. As he promised long ago through his holy prophets, and then he explains three of the prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. That's from Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, if you read the previous verse that he doesn't quote, verse 14, says this. The nations will dispossess, sorry, the nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. He says those other nations, to the Jewish people, that you're going to take in the land of Canaan, they practice divination and sorcery. But you are going to have a prophet. And Moses says what? The Lord will raise up a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen to everything he tells you. And anyone who does not listen to him will be cut off. Moses is saying there will come a greater prophet than I. I mean, they thought Moses was the greatest prophet. And he's saying someone greater than me will come. Peter's saying that's Jesus. So don't listen to divination. Don't listen to sorcery. Don't turn to anyone else. Turn to Jesus. He's the one Moses spoke of. That's what he's saying to the Jewish people. I mean, we might think that's a done day, but how many people do I know read their tarot cards? How many people do I know look at their horoscopes? How many people do I know? I mean, I didn't even know this till most recently that there's a whole group in the Muslim tradition that practice black magic. Paul and I met a man. I told his testimony a number of weeks ago who grew up in the Middle East in one of those families. And when God had saved him through a vision, he first experienced God's grace or love at least at, at 12 years old through the reading of something in his grandparents' home. And then at 17, when God was granting him visions, God saved him. And the demonic told his family. Before he told his family he'd been saved, they knew. They knew. Because the demonic is still at work. This summer, we're going to do a short series uh, in August, I think, on spiritual warfare. I've done this three times previously in my time here on angelology and demonology and just talking about what that looks like. But here, 
in the word of God, Deuteronomy 18, Moses is saying, don't turn to them. Don't look to them. Moses, a greater one than me will come. He's the one to listen to, and if you don't, you'll be cut off. And here Peter says, the one Moses is talking about is Jesus. And then he goes on, verse 24, indeed, beginning with Samuel and all the prophets who have spoken and have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. And he said to Abraham, through your offspring, your peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So he points to Samuel. Why Samuel? Samuel never offers a prophetic word about David, or about Jesus, sorry. But it's Samuel who anoints David as king, of whom his line will never end, and it's through David that the Messiah comes. And so here Peter says, it's not just about Moses and what Moses is pointing it to, it's also about Samuel and the Davidic line. The fact that Jesus would come from him. And then he says, if that's not enough, I want you to know that Abraham was promised that through his offspring, all the people on earth will be blessed. And so turn from your wicked ways. You see, up until the time of Christ, predominantly, God had chosen to work through one nation. Yes, of course, he'd saved Nineveh. And there were others in where he worked. But predominantly through one nation, Israel. People could choose to become Israelites and believe in Jehovah God. We see that through Scripture. There are godly people who are from another uh, uh, heritage. Ruth is an example of that, a Moabitess. But predominantly through Israel. But once Jesus has resurrected, what does he say? Go into all the world, make disciples of how many nations? Of all nations. That's why we're so excited to be working with the Karen today. That's why I'm so, so excited in, in a few weeks to be baptizing someone from the Hamilton Chinese Christian Fellowship, who's a part of James North, believing that when their family comes, that God might even that day save someone. Because God can do that. God's that powerful. He chooses to open eyes. He chooses to reveal to people who Jesus is. And that's why Peter says, don't make this about John and I. This is about Jesus, whom you handed over, whom you killed, who is the servant Isaiah spoke of, the holy and righteous one, who is the Messiah, who is the one greater than Moses, the one Samuel foretold, the one who fulfills the promise of Abraham that all the nations we bless through. It's Jesus. Is that not great news? And what is true about Jesus? For anyone, anywhere, anytime who repents from whatever they've trusted in and turns to God, he wipes away their sin. Amen? And he grants time of refreshing. He refreshes your soul. He loves you that much. He wants to restore a relationship with you and him. He wants to show you that his way is the best way because he's created you and he knows the way in which you should live. That's our Savior. Would you pray with me? We are so thankful that you are our God and that you sent your son, Jesus. And Jesus, we're thankful that you came. 
And so often we confess that we make much of ourselves or our ministry when we need to make much of you. Forgive us for that. And God, today I, I pray for anyone who's here who hasn't yet repented and trusted in you, who hasn't yet believed. I pray that today as they hear my voice, God, whether they're here or online, that you would bring them to a point, to a place where they would have a hatred of their sin, where they would repent of their sin, turning from it, and they would turn to you, God. And I pray that you would show them that you wipe away their sin, you wipe it away, and that you grant them times of refreshing. And God, for those of us that are here this day that know and love you, God, may you walk with us, because some of us have allowed other things to creep in our lives that we need to repent of. God, would you cause us to bring these things before you? Would you wipe away our sin as you've done? And would you grant us refreshing we need? We thank you that you love us that much, that you save us that comprehensively. And we come before you now in the powerful resurrected name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen.